it just made sense. There was increasing regulation and legislation about the way that we could operate. And there was very few solutions being offered. Um, it was just problem after problem, you know, of how to continue operating the way that we had instead of looking forward, looking to the future and looking to, you know, the solutions going forward. And regenerative farming really does tip that box for dairy farming. It doesn't have to be anything massive, just, you know, multi-species cropping or adding diversity to your pastures, you know, maybe looking at cutting back on solid furt and looking at using foliar furt. There's, not, there's a lot of solutions out there for the problems that we face today. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. Welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm joined this morning by none other than our own Dean Parker. And for those of you that don't know Dean, I'm going to hand it over now for him to introduce himself. Good morning, Dean. G'day, Jono. How's it? Good, man. Yeah, well, uh, I suppose primarily uh, Melissa Scarlett, my wife and I, are lower order share milkers on her family farm here in Hororata. Um, we milk 400 cows, self-contained, and we produce A2 milk for Sinlay. We, um, yeah, we've been on the family farm here for just over a decade, um, but that's kind of only one part of my the hats that I wear, I suppose you'd say. Um, I'm also a filmmaker, a freelance um, adventure filmmaker, and I also work for Quorum Sense as a, a video content creator for their video case studies. Vital part of the team. Before we go diving into the some of the stuff you've been doing with Quorum Sense and, and the, the family farm as well, Tell us about the transition. So you used to do a lot of adventure stuff before coming into the farm. Do you want to tell us a bit about life before the farm? Yeah, so pretty much my 20s and early 30s were spent in the adventure tourism industry. Uh, I was a partner in a rafting business in Murchison for seven years. Uh, and then we got too big for our boots uh, with that business. And uh, the business went into receivership and I exited that business. And Melissa and I set up a little rafting company in Hokitika on the West Coast, which was uh, pretty, much, pretty much a dream of mine because the rivers on the West Coast are the world class and the white water there is, is, you know, some of the best in New Zealand. So I felt pretty privileged to be able to offer white water rafting trips on the Arahura River, which is commonly known as the Greenstone River. So we got permission from the Mafera Incorporation to operate on, on that river and we set up quite a special rafting trip there and did that for four years. Um, at the end of that time, I kind of got too long on the tooth for that just because of the amount of physical demands. I'd had a few broken bones and survived a helicopter crash and uh, at that time uh, we got offered to join um, Melissa's parents on their little 250 cow dairy farm at Green Park. Uh, so we went over there and, and did that for, for a few years. I was very naive about farming, didn't come from a farming background. So I thought I knew better than everyone. <laughs> At one point we moved on and I had a job uh, as a 2IC on a dairy, 800 cow dairy farm in Golden Bay. And 
yeah, that was quite an eye-opener to commercial dairying and quite shocking um, just because I was just a number along with 800 numbers of the cows and didn't really enjoy that. It was quite a yeah low part of um, my life. During that time, uh, Melissa's parents converted a little block up here at Horarata into a 180-cow farm. So yeah, we... We um, came back here and, and took on this role here and we uh, expanded the farm up to, yeah, where we are now, 400 cows. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of diverged there a little bit away from adventure, uh, but adventure has always been part of my life. Uh, I grew up with a uh, fostering of the love of the outdoors through tramping and biking and, and so forth. So I kind of uh, put that on hold when I started my farming career but it was always kind of like smoldering in the background. I just one day picked up a camera and realized that the stuff that I was doing was interesting to people. And I started making just little made for the internet films and that kind of blossomed into kind of being a bit more specific with my adventure content to produce made for film festival films, which is a really quite a cool place to be. Well, you know, it's just like someone that's purely an amateur with a camera to be able to see their work on the big screens of a film festival was really inspiring. And I'm kind of pretty much addicted to, to that, that now. So every year I set myself a couple of venture projects that I'm going to target a film festival or film festivals. And I've got a pretty cool little group of mates that join me on, on those venture projects. Um, so it's not just more about me now, it's a little team of people that just are inspired by adventure and doing things that are a little bit outside the norm, which is probably why I was so drawn to doing something outside the norm with farming, I suppose. Yeah, and, and adventure is still a big part of your life, not just in what you do, epic videos I've seen of your bike rafting adventures and all that sort of stuff, but also the adventures of the farm, which is often as exciting and nerve-wracking and dangerous and I'm sure everything in between. So let's now dive into, so the farm you're at now, so you've been there just over a decade, you've had an experience that, you know, I would say was really valuable, even though you at the time would have been not valuable at all, but I bet you it gives you some perspective that time you spent on that farm, 800 cows. Tell us about then the opportunity that was the farm what was the start of that journey like coming back home <laughs> very challenging very yeah. challenging to eat humble pie to come back to to the family farm and been difficult at times my in-laws are fourth generation dairy farmers from Karamea so it's been uh yeah it's been uh highs and lows of you know getting them to comprehend that there are things that we can do differently that could be better for the land and for the soil and potentially more profitable I you know have got to give them credit that they've actually allowed us the free reign to undertake you know some of the regenerative stuff that we have uh, it's so far out of their universe way more than outside of my universe so you know and that's something that I've I've observed with my time with Quorum since that the farms that are most of the people that I've dealt with are from a family farm because those are the types of farms that have that free reign without a board of directors or a committee making those decisions or, you know, overriding or overruling those decisions, such as on the corporate farms. So, yeah, the farm in Golden Bay was or actually was a family farm, but there was the challenges on that farm were 
big as well. The climate there is challenging. It's a long, skinny farm. It's irrigated, but there was lots of restrictions when the Takaka River was low. Um, and also there was a lot of backlash to irrigators from the Takaka Valley because the, you know, that water ends up in underground and in Pupu Springs. So, you know, the, the water quality was quite an issue. Is that the um, one that's like the cleanest water? Yeah, thing? I think it is, you know, like the it's it's deep, that spring. It comes from deep and but it's mainly the water from draining out of the Takaka Valley. And the Takaka Valley isn't really intensively farmed, and the catchment for the Takaka River is in Kaharangi National Park. So it's relatively low impact. But you know, the the community were quite concerned about you know, the few farms that did irrigate and were slapping on the fert as to what the, you know, degradation was going to be to those aquifers, you know, that that ended up in, you know, one of the cleanest water and biggest springs uh, in the world. What was that like for you, man? Like being someone involved in that, like personally, like what, yeah, tell us about that, because I'm sure you're someone who's aware of water quality given your background. What was it like operating on a farm, possibly in the spotlight for you? One time, I remember one time I was getting the cows in and on the other side of the Takaka River, there's a community and one of those community members were taking photos of me crossing the cows across the river because they were still doing that at this point. And it was a huge eye-opener that, you know, people cared enough about their waterway that they would actually come down and take photos and they got submitted to the council and the farmer you know got a slap on the wrist for doing something they would and shouldn't which is crossing a herd of 400 odd cows across a, a river so yeah that was a bit of an eye-opener but to be honest with you Jono I've seen that a lot in my dairy career I came from what is led to believe uh, you know green industry tourism which you know hey no jet planes don't have any environmental impact do they um, but anyway so I did get a lot of backlash from my peers from from my previous career about you know swapping sides to becoming a dirty dairy farmer and that was very hard at times uh, and it also shaped the person I am today or the farmer that I am today uh, and to be honest when Melissa discovered regenerative farming and you were one of those people that she was listening to maybe four or five years ago now, it was like a total light bulb moment. You know, there is a way of farming, but giving back to the land and giving back to the soil, as opposed to just, you know, degrading and raping, you know, that resource. So I was like a rat up a drain pipe when, when um, you know, when I started learning about regenerative farming and the ability for, you know, to build the soil. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It sounds like you know, carrying that word or that phrase or that context even, a dirty dairy farmer, when, when you discovered this world of the possibility of building soil health and restoring natural capital, could you feel the burden of that phrase lift or disappear? Or was it something you had to grapple with like a tug of war at times? I climbed that ladder like I was it was going out of fashion, mate. <laughs> you were the cat after the rat up the drain pipe. Yeah, something like that, mate. <laughs> something like that. And to be honest with you, it was it, it just made sense. There was increasing regulation and legislation about the way that we could operate. And there was very few solutions being offered. Um, it was just problem after problem, you know, of how to continue operating the way that we had. 
instead of looking forward, looking to the future and looking to, you know, the solutions going forward. And regenerative farming really does tip that box for dairy farming. It doesn't have to be anything massive, just, you know, multi-species cropping or adding diversity to your pastures, you know, maybe looking at cutting back on solid furt and looking at using foliar furt. There's, not, there's a lot of solutions out there for the problems that we face today. And I'm just really want to focus on those solutions and not get down quagmired down with you know that responsibility of of having to try and farm the way that we used to i'd love to hear what it was like around the table when so melissa discovered this new idea or this new you know thought process or management process around soil health you were on like donkey kong but what was it like from there to then talk to you know the the parents, um, Melissa's parents, your your mother and father-in-law about this new idea. Tell us a bit about from discovering this new idea to then actually being able to try some stuff. Was it as simple as like, hey, we're going to try some stuff, or you know, tell us a bit about what that dynamic was like? Yeah, I mean, going. I need to kind of step back before I started up the drain pipe, and you know, I have to give Melissa all the credit for for discovering it and. I did was resistant at first. I wanted to leap like sleeping dogs lie and just continue to try and keep everyone happy. But Melissa was reading and watching and learning so much. And it wasn't long before I started to absorb that information and, and yeah, started that journey up the drain pipe. Melissa is a strong individual and she is totally my strongest mentor as far as farming goes because I said I'm not a generational farmer Melissa's affinity for the land is so strong it's encouraging and inspiring every day to see how much she wants to hang on to the land and to make the land and the soil a better place for the next generation and that keeps Melissa going every day of the week you know the idea that we want the farm to be in a better place for the next generation it was kind of pretty easy for Melissa to be able to say to her parents hey we're going to try this and we didn't really give them the opportunity to say no we just went ahead and did it and we started small we started with adding some diversity to our pastures you know some chicory some plantain some you know some more clovers you know the results were you know immediate and that's what so then our next step was to uh, trial multi-species winter crops and it's the same thing. The results are amazing. Straight away, while we didn't have the massive yield of a monoculture crop, the ability for that crop to recover and to leave the soil protected and to be able to graze that area in spring again instead of just leaving bare soil was incredible, absolutely incredible. And as we found very quickly that it was actually got quite difficult to get rid of those plant species <laughs> because they were so um, resilient and 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 just kept growing so there was there was no disadvantage for us in incorporating winter species multi-crop into our system three years ago i think we did our last monoculture kale crop and we've been wintering on multi-species winter crop ever since i would not go back to monoculture yeah, I'd love to talk about that first year because I know it was a challenge for you guys diving into some new land and, you know, dry land for anyone that knows Hororata. 
very very challenging environment and i remember there were some tough times for you guys what was that like was there was there moments of doubt or you know talk us through that that process of switching from something where you're very much in control you put on the fur it needed and sort of get a predictable result to like all of a sudden i actually feel john we've got more challenges now than we had back then <laughs> And the reason for that is back then we were comparing multi-species crop when still doing monoculture kale. So it was, you know, the kale would get eaten, there was bare soil there and potentially up for a couple of months, whereas the multi-species we were grazing with our, in our first round with our milkers and extending our platform. Um, our second year or third year, I can't quite remember, which was last winter, was the most challenging because we made the jump with this new block of land to use that as 100% of our wintering for our cows. Uh, last autumn was ridiculously dry. And essentially that crop went from at Christmas time looking okay to basically burying its head in the dirt, um, you know, by the time we came to graze it. So last winter, we brought tens of thousands of dollars worth of supplement to make up for that deficit. But once again, you know, as soon as the moisture came around and as soon as that brown stuff was grazed off the top, all of that stuff recovered. We grazed uh, our heifers and our young stock on our wintering area right through until Christmas when we terminated that stuff to plant this year's winter crop. So last winter was challenging and this winter we've got the seed mix wrong in commas there. Uh, we are probably over vetched our crop. We put eight kilograms a hectare of hairy vetch. Uh, in a stand of kale, swede, turnips, triticale, some uh, shogun ryegrass and some clovers. And what's happened now is the vetch has pretty much grown over top of all the other species and strangled it. Um, the species are there and they're under, underneath, but uh, the vetch is pretty much 90% of the sward. So once uh, Melissa identified that, we made the pretty hard call to harvest, to mow or windrow that crop, which we're probably going to do this Thursday, day after tomorrow. And we're going to bale that crop up and then we'll see what <laughs> recovers. So you can imagine it's a, so outside of the norm to harvest your winter crop in April. Uh, but that's what we're going to do. We've had some advice. Greg Lowe, he had the same issue with a vetch crop and he chopped and stacked it. We don't have a feed wagon, so that's not really an option for us. And I've spoken to my baling contractor, Bob Searle, and he's suggested that it's going to be no more difficult to bale than what peas would be. Um, and he recommended the wind rower as opposed to a mower. And hopefully that means that we can keep the height uh, and leave the turnips and the swedes and hopefully some of the breath, the kale will recover. But the shogun ryegrass and the clovers in the base are very strong. So I'm confident that with two months before we need to graze that area with the cows, that we will see hopefully four to five tonne recovery. And we will have harvested between 90 and 100 tonne of supplement that we can put back into the system, you know, when, when we need to. And what I'm hearing is, a new opening for options. You said it was something that you'd never thought of doing before. And when you started creating the scenario for us uh, so vividly, talking about the vetch, you know, dominating and you know, concerns about possible toxicity with it being so dominant, um, and then to sitting down together, 
you know, thinking actually what is, you know, what are some actions we can take? And then all of a sudden there's an action, a brand new action that was, you know, once something that was never on the table is now on the table and you've turned a, a possibly disastrous situation into a really positive outcome. What's it like as a team, you know, and as a couple, the two of you, you and Melissa, being able to sit down and think about and speculate and brainstorm ideas that are brand new for you guys? What's that like? bloody difficult yeah i mean we we've such different backgrounds and such complete individuals that it is trying at times but i believe that that also is you know beneficial at times as well to be able to have that conscience on each side of the shoulder as to which way to go normally you know we meet in the we don't meet in the middle we meet one at one end normally melissa's end you know melissa's the, the farm manager, she's the one that has to answer to, to the farm owners. Um, and I believe that my role here is to support her in that. So yeah, I mean, the most important thing that I can offer the team is the Quorum Sense Network. Mm. I go to the WhatsApp group. I go to those individuals that I've formed a bond with through the filming of my case studies um, for advice. And, you know, without the Quorum Sense Network, the ability to, to, to bounce off other regenerative farmers, it would be a lonely place, but it's not because there is an amazing network of people that is really prepared to offer information and advice from their experiences. And even just this morning, I put some videos of that multi-species crop and already the feedback that I received is so inspiring that I don't feel that this is going to be a disaster. I feel that this is going to be an opportunity. And while it might cost, you know, thousands of dollars to bail and put it away and, you know, potentially thousands more dollars to feed it back to the cows, it's, it's not a mistake. It's a learning. And I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, if you feel like you've, you've failed at something, the most important thing from that is to learn from it and to use that knowledge to go, going forward. And, you know, I just feel what I'm saying now has been spoken to me from so many other people that have made this journey, this pathway, um, that, yeah, it feels like I'm rattling off a broken record. Really powerful, Dean. And before I come back to something you said earlier, it's like, for me, what I'm hearing is if you didn't get what you wanted to get, you've learnt what you've needed to learn. Wow, that's, that's a cool statement. I love it. And so coming back to Round the Table... You, you created with us that, you know, you and Melissa are very different people. And what I got as you were sharing that was like, mate, that's like, it's exactly the same as our, you know, going from monoculture plantings of our species. It also, as we diversify the species on farm, it's important that we diversify our inputs and perspectives off in our, in our relationships as well. And what you created was just that. And that was just between the two of you, like you both bring different things to the table. And then you created introducing more diversity through the Quorum Sense Network, through, you know, avenues like this and through your case studies. And what was there for me was like, man, what we are is we're just the mycelial network. Quorum Sense is just like the, the mycelial network that people can tap into if they want to. And it then connects to all these other diversity um, human beings like the the, what's happening right now out in your winter winter crops or even in your pastures is fantastic man i've also found during my time with case studies you know most of the farms that i've been to the women are 
the driving force for regenerative for whatever reason you know whether it's their nurturing fostering side or i'm not sure but you know women do drive regenerative farming maybe not at face value but underneath and you know making those important decisions i'd love to talk about um as we start building this this storyline um you're we playing around with some hemp on the platform yeah that was even probably before well it was before we you know we started um with multi-species we um we had heard of the benefits of hemp we knew that, that it was an amazing super plant and the amount of uses that it could be used for uh, and then a company here in canterbury carfields offered hemp contracts for both seed and fiber and we discussed it with our consultant and we could see that it could fit into the dairy system at the peak of the of the growth curve you could take out the top of your grass curve install a cash crop essentially to instead of you know making that surplus uh, liability generate an income source and so our goal was to do that take out three paddocks or two paddocks on the dairy farm crop it with hemp from november through to february and then have it back into grass in time to get a grazing before the end of lactation. That was the plan. <laughs> didn't happen. The hemp crop was on the dairy platform under an irrigator that we weren't able to ch change the amount of water that we were putting on. So essentially we were watering the hemp at the same rate as grass. And we found out very quickly that hemp didn't need to be watered that often. The advice that we received in hindsight was that hemp needs a big dollop of water, but less regularly. So we didn't get good growth from the roots. The roots stayed at the surface, didn't turn into a tap root, didn't get down deep. Uh, and that obviously affected the plant growth. And we were expecting a 10 tonne a hectare crop and we grew three and a, three and a half tonne a hectare. So the financial viability of it was out the door, which was disappointing. Uh, and some other farmers that have been able to grow it on a stand where it's not irrigated with with grass um, have done more successfully uh, but from a fiber point of view it didn't really fit in that system we also had to ret it we had to leave it once it had been harvested we needed to leave it on the ground for ended up being six weeks so that was the opportunity to get that land back into grass gone uh, and therefore financially it was a bit of a lemon really and it was great to see the hemp grow. I love the hemp plant and the fiber is amazing. And, you know, we managed to keep enough for ourselves and for an, a woman that runs a small business that, that makes hemp balms um, to give her a year supply of product. And that was a little intangible that was a pretty cool thing to do. What a discovery and what a lot of learning there. What do you think is behind the, the link between water frequency and lack of root development? Well, it's interesting, you know, we've, we're told that, you know, we should water little and often, and that's what we do here in Canterbury. And what that leads to, we just don't see root development. You know, the plants don't need to go searching for moisture. So the root system is shallow and, you know, we don't get penetration, you know, deeper into the soil with the roots. And it's something that I'd like to trial uh, at some point, you know, changing from putting on three and a half to five mils a day to something different, probably a lot bigger dollop, but less often, just like the hemp, 
and see what that did to root development and potential yield. It's potentially that we could yield a lot more from, it's just speculation at this point until I give it a shot. I, I love the speculation. Like I love the, I wonder, and, and you're really speaking to a crucial part of, of the whole journey because it really is a journey is, uh, you know, levels of curiosity. I know Jules really spoke about it. Uh, Jules Matthews in the most recent Quorum Sense podcast, but have you found it like the, the curiosity that you have? And, and I get that a lot of it was developed through your inspiration through Melissa. Tell us about what it's like in an industry that really doesn't promote curiosity, you know, like in an industry that this is the way you do it. And this is, you know, cause that's my experience in the being in the deer industry myself. What's it like having this? I wonder, I want to try and let's talk outside of the core and sense network where that's really embraced. What's it like in the, in your, you know, we'll say conventional circles or traditional circles communicating these, you know, speculations. I don't, it doesn't bother me anymore, Jono. I, I let that get to me for too long, thinking, what am I doing? Why am I here? I've let go of that. I'm open, really am open to most, trialling most things on farm. If I can talk, if Melissa can talk me into it, I should say, then um, we can talk the parents into it. We'll go for it. I think that it's really important for farmers of today to let go of that. This is the way I do it. My next door neighbour is 100% conventional, but he looks over our fence and sees what's going on. And I know that he started to wonder. And I think that that's really important just for people to, to start wondering what could be different, what could be around the corner. Because, you know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, you need to learn until the day you die. You're never going to learn everything. And there's always going to be someone else doing something better or worse than you. And the only thing to take from that is to learn from their experiences. I was speaking to my neighbor the other day with his monoculture kale crop is right beside our multi-species. And, you know, the kale crops probably a good foot taller than what our multi-species is. And the first thing he said to me, he said, that looks good enough to eat. So I know that he's wondering. I know that he's, he's thinking about what he could be doing differently. Yeah, it's just my experience with my neighbour, really. But yeah, I mean, I, I could care less what people think of what I'm doing. And I think that that's, that attitude's been formed from long ago when I first started farming and I was looked down on by my peers in the adventure tourism sector. And that's freed you up to then share and contribute to others like you did this morning, because I know that you've contributed this morning and I've seen the responses. It's fantastic. Um, a lot of acknowledgement there for you guys. I want to talk about some of the other opportunities that you've jumped on. You've been playing with multi-species winter staff, scratching stuff into bashes on the platform and, and with varying, you know, different results almost or definitely different results every year. What other techniques or practices have you taken on in your journey so far? Probably the biggest one is we've moved away from solid fertilizer this year we managed to talk Melissa's parents into buying a tow and fur, the 2,800 litre tow and fur, which I believe Maya Smith had a bit to do with. Um, another dairy farmer that is an incredible role model for, for the dairy sector. And that has been challenging this season because we have noticed that the pastures have been in shock from not having its day, uh, annual dose of 400 kg of phosphates. 
spread across the farm. So we did lose a bit of production in the peak of the season, but we're through that transition now. We've, we're up to speed with getting our trace elements uh, on according to uh, the consultant that we're using for, for that. We've got the process of the toe and fur up and running. It's now part of my staff's weekly tasks to do the paddocks that are behind the cows with lime and humates as well as nitrogen. The pastures seem to be flourishing. Um, it's gut feeling and we've had good growth at this end of the season. So, you know, I can't lay, you know, lay my hat on that, that that's what's happening. But I believe that we're through that shock cycle and we're away. Last season, uh, we put on 220 kilograms uh, units, sorry, of nitrogen. And this season, we're at 140 plus what's left in the silo. We're budgeted to put on 160, and that's probably what we'll do. And that's even with the toe and fur turning up mid-season. And I believe that that's what dairy farmers need to be aspiring to do, is to, to be keeping a constant record of how much nitrogen they've applied during the season. And to be honest, this was the first season where I looked mid-season at how much we'd used, purely because we were transitioning. And I was interested to know how we were stacking up compared to last season. You know, I know that Greg Lowe down there in Hines is down to 100 units of nitrogen. And I think that's an amazing goal to aim for, for any dairy farmer to be able to maintain somewhat a similar stocking rate to what they were when they were putting on 200. But to be putting on, you know, somewhere near half of that is amazing. And I think a few other dairy farmers aspired to that, you know, we wouldn't have nearly as much nitrate leaching issues. And I think in the Canterbury Plains with the nitrate levels in the water that are creeping up, you know, we, we have to move now. You know, we're not going to see those nitrates turn up in the water that we've been putting on for the last 20 years for potentially another 30 years. It's scary. So we've got to make change and we've got to find solutions. And I think foliar fert, uh, while there is, for us, it was quite a, you know, a $70,000 capital um, investment in the tow and fert, uh, it was it's already proved worth it. And I believe that we will return that capital investment with savings of fertilizer within a couple of years. We've already saved $700 a hectare across our winter crop area and fertilizer from last year. You don't have to buy the $70,000 tow and fert. Sam Lang up the road's bodged together a unit with bits and pieces that he had lying around the farm and, you know, if you're not in the dairy sector, it's not it's not it's not a thing to be able to just go out and lay out seventy thousand dollars on a new piece of machinery like that. So sometimes you need to put your thinking cap on and and, and come up with another solution. And also, um, there's plenty of you know the you know the industry is embracing this. You know there are so many tow and foot contractors these days. Whilst it is expensive, you're still going to save money over solid fur. You know, look what out there, support your local contractors if you can't afford your own machine and get go go get it. You know, keep a track of your nitrogen use. It, it's not, you know, look at the cost of that product. It's skyrocketing. You'll be a fool not to see this as an opportunity to lower that massive expense and do good by the land and the soil. It's, it's a no-brainer. How do we bring that one into our thinking you know what's our impact on you know like you said earlier being conscious of water quality you know what you're painting here is a picture of actually having that and i can really hear it it's like that's there for you with these decisions that you're making every time you're thinking what what's the impact it's not just economical is it 
Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing on my farm is affecting the water that Christchurch drinks. <laughs> and I just can't, you know, I can't not speak to that. You know, how can you not see, you know, because I'm a rivers person, it's really easy to, you know, to see that, the, the you know, even the underground water that's going past my farm ends up in the activists in Christchurch. You know, it would be totally negligent of me to not take that into consideration with the decisions that we make. And you're farmed in Green Park, which is a real sensitive area. Like we've all seen, you know, Coes Ford, the Selwyn. That's what, what our actions are creating, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we're on very light soils here. So it's, it's very, very easy for, for leaching to occur. You know, we're very conscious of that. One other thing that we do that may be a little bit different to others is we spread 100% of our effluent with a slurry tanker. So we don't have a traveling irrigator. So we're able to apply our effluent over 100% of our farm. So when we do an application, even though we consented for 21 mils, we put on three and a half. The idea that our effluent's going through into the water table is just not happening. And I think that that's another thing that dairy farmers, uh, you know, I'm not even sure anymore because I haven't had to consider it for so long because of the slurry tanker. You know, last time I looked, you know, you were allowed to put your effluent on 10% of your area. Well... <laughs> That's a ridiculously small amount of your, of your farm and your land. So I encourage farmers to look at how they can find solutions to increase that effluent area. And obviously, you know, the benefits thing about I put that effluent over all of your land is massive. It's another accolade. It's, a, it's a, another expensive piece of machinery that that sits over there and, and we use for a day of the week and it ties up a tractor for a day of the week and it ties up a staff member for the day of the week. You only have to have a few travelling irrigators come a cropper and you end up with, you know, in a big mess. It's an easy decision to know. And I tell people that we observe every single litre of effluent that goes onto our farm. We have to because we're sitting in the tractor cab. And it's almost the same shift. Like what I'm hearing is your shift from granular to foliar furt applications. Furt is is being absorbed by the plant through the you know the foliar leaf of the plant, and so not overloading what you're describing as very free draining soil. It's the same the same with your effluent. Rather than piling it on at 20 mils on a small area, which would obviously run off the leaf and into the soil and through the soil it's almost like a you're you're utilizing that mostly through the plant and not the soil well obviously you'll get some in the soil but what you're focusing on and what you're creating is feeding plants that feed soil rather than feeding soils that you can leach a small percentage of it comes back to your plant i don't know if it was intentional but that's what i that's what i heard yeah yeah, I mean, effluent's a, you know, it's a massive part of modern dairy farming. You know, not most people see it as waste. And we all know in, in regenerative circles that it's it's not. It's a very valuable nutrient. And I think that we should, you know, make the most of that as much as we can. Interesting, I came across a product you can add to your effluent bowl, uh, which I didn't know anything about until... Um, this week and I'm very keen to to look at that uh, product called BioAg DFD so um, yeah that's that's my next thing is I I believe it's quite expensive but uh, we do have a big crust on our effluent bowl and I believe it's very good at removing that crust and making you know the treating the you know the liquid into a you know much more natural and natural state so 
think that's the next thing that um, I'd like to to look at incorporating into our system. Really shifting from it being a burden and a byproduct or you know a, a problem to actually a highly valuable foliar feeder for your farm. And, and you know, Sam was Sam Lang um, was the person who put me onto this, and the reality, you know, he pointed out that why aren't we regulated to do this? Why aren't we regulated to add biological agents to our effluent to make it more friendly to the environment? It's nuts. <laughs> I'd love to put that question in a different light back to you, Dean. Why do you think we're not seeing any discussions about anything to do with biology in our, you know, we're not focusing on the on the biology of the soil and as well as the biology in the in the room and as much as what you're discovering it is important now in your in your journey what's your experience with not only your journey as a farmer but as your incredible role with various farmers for quorum sense what are you learning is is some of the reasons why you could speculate you know why do you not think we talk about it most farmers just want to stick to the formula that they've done for the last X amount of decades, primarily. It's also about the salesmen for conventional products. There's more of them. They're probably paid more. They're more convincing. And therefore, most people just buy the conventional products, probably only seldomly work. And I think that you do have to, just like everything in life, John, you need to go out there and look for the information, alternative information, not through conventional channels. And it's out there. You just have to take the time to go out and do your homework, get educated, and you'll find that there are plenty of alternatives, good alternatives, healthy alternatives, cost-effective alternatives. It's up to the individual to do that learning. We've been, for decades, we've been told how to farm by various corporations and you know, they, do they have the same affinity for the land and the soil that we do as farmers? I doubt it. So it's really important to think about where you're getting your advice from and to think about what the agenda for those businesses are to sell you that product. And, you know, and then to go, okay, well, what's the alternative? What can, you know, what else can I use? Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we've discovered with that multi-species winter crop that we're going to take off is there's heaps of slugs in the base. I've never put slug bait on our land, and I'm really quite hesitant to go chucking something on that's going to kill every insect and bug that comes across that product. Just had to look on the internet, look at what's available, and hey, you know, there's a product there that I won't name it, that, you know, that's biological and is available and albeit it sounds like they're struggling with supply of the raw products they use for that product just like a lot of industries at the moment in this mixed up covid world i'm going to be keep searching for hopefully i can find and get that product in the time that we need it you know something that's going to be less harmful to you know to the beneficials and and you know look after you know the, the bugs and the insects that you've that come across on on multi-species crop is so impressive and even the white butterflies you know as i said my neighbor's got a monoculture kale crop and beside is our multi-species it's just a swarm of white butterflies over his crop and that's with maybe potentially two butterfly sprays and on our side yeah there's still butterflies but there's just a few just here and there and everywhere and we put no bug spray, no insecticide. 
over that crop. So the saving is huge. And therefore we've got bees, we've got, you know, little hoverflies, we've got butterflies, you know, all of the all of the bugs that, you know, that are doing good for the for the, those flowering plants and pollination and the rest of it. Quite contrast to being the number alongside the 800 cows. It sounds to me like the journey's been not just on the farm, but continued out into quite a personal transformation, Dean. Oh, for sure, Jono. You know, there's no way I could go back. I'd rather give up farming than go back to the way that I was. And I think about that from time to time. You know, to go back to, you know being a number and, and, you know, working this hour to this hour and this is my task. I think that, you know, that's the other thing that I haven't spoken about yet is how important people are to farming. Know that we're a good employer because, you know, our staff stay with us. We retain our staff. And I think that if you don't look after your people, you will be in a constant cycle of recruitment, training, resignation. It's so much more difficult to manage people than it is livestock. But it's really important to take to value your people and and to make your people feel valuable. Um, people don't feel that they're valuable and their contributions they won't last long. And that was one of the reasons why I was you know got disgruntled in, in Golden Bay was I wasn't valued for my my inputs. I make sure that from time to time I tell my staff done a good job. You know how much that means to someone when you tell them you know. You've done a good job today. Thank you for your efforts. It means way much more than a box of beer, you know. So look after your people. People come should be coming before the animals, should be coming for the land even. If you've got unhappy people, everything else will be unhappy as well. You've learned from being someone, yeah, exactly, who was not treated well. So what, like I said, you know, even though at the time you didn't get what you wanted, you learned and you've carried it on through. I guess that the other thing that you're sort of alluding to there is um, doing something with your learnings. Absolutely. You know, the people that I've worked with with, for the video case studies are the salt of the earth. These are the most genuine people you'll come across. They are people that will bend over backwards for their land, for their people, for the next generation. And, you know, that's what I love most about the regenerative sector is that people look after people. I want to... And look, I can really hear that you're always, you got, you and Melissa are constantly coming up with like hurdles and you, I can really hear that you're, to you, the hurdles don't appear as walls. You're not going to stop. You'll hit the odd hurdle. But what I can hear is like, you're creating, there's no way you're going to let those stop you continuing. It's like, you'll jump them, you'll go around them, you'll do your own research and find out how to best deal with this particular hurdle. There's no like stopping of, oh, this is too hard. I'm going to go back to my comfortable place of the prescriptive, you know, mindset or the mechanical mindset. It's wonderful. So I want to now lead into our final question, which is if you could say something, Dean, to anyone who's just starting out in their journey from your experience, what would you say if you could if you could speak to someone who's just pricking their ears up to this whole world of we'll use regenerative for the sake of the question? What would you say to that person or that family or that that community? Don't look back. I think it's really important not to look at the way that we've done things in the past, but to look forward to how we can do things better in the future. And there's so much out there that we can do better. It's easy. So pick one thing on your farm and that you know that you're not doing well. Do some homework, find out what the alternatives are, 
don't look back. Just keep keep soldiering on. You know, jumping that hurdle is going to make the next hurdle easier to jump. Embrace those hurdles. <laughs> I've never heard it put like that. Just don't look back. And, and you're speaking to a really powerful quote that I'm reminded of by Einstein, which is the thinking that's caused the problems is not the same thinking required to solve those same problems. So exactly like what you've just said, don't look back. Can you send me that quote? That was awesome too, bro. <laughs> yeah, awesome, Dean. Well, hey, look, I acknowledge you for the inspiration that you are for everyone in the Quorum Sense community as a farmer and a family man, but also what you're doing with the case studies, the video content. It is absolutely a privilege for me to be working alongside such an incredible human being, Dean. You and Melissa, I acknowledge you both. Thank you so much for your time. Ditto, mate. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.